0: a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. And today I'm talking to Karma Chavez about her book, The Borders of Age, Race, Quarantine and Resistance. And this is the latest podcast for the Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities channel. Karma,
1: can you tell us about you? Who are you? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be here. I'm um, excited to talk about the work. And uh, I, I'm currently an associate professor and department chair at the University of Texas at Austin in the U.S. and the Department of Mexican-American and Latina latino Studies. So okay. uh, we're an ethnic studies department, uh, and I've been here for about five years. And yeah, so that, that's who and where I am. So what are your, your areas of sort of like specific research interests? Sure. So I uh, am trained in communication, specifically in the field of rhetoric. And so I am interested in questions related to social movements. I'm interested in issues largely about immigration and queer politics. And my work has historically looked at where the two of those things intersect, kind of broadly construed. And so as a rhetoric scholar, I'm Generally, looking at text and text also broadly construed, but really thinking about where, um, you know, the public discourse around something emerges and what its sorts of meanings are.
0: Okay, so how it almost gets talked into
1: existence. Cool. So, why this book and why now? It's so you know, the book started many many years ago, and I was. Several several years ago, maybe close to a decade ago, I was an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I had this opportunity to contribute to a special issue of one of our big journals in my field called the Quarterly Journal of Speech, and it was for a special forum on the organization ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, uh, which was if people don't know. This direct action sort of pop up organization out of New York and eventually went global that uh, fought against government inaction and discrimination against people living with HIV and AIDS. And so there was going to be this forum that was celebrating uh, this organization's history. And so I wanted to do something that had to do with race because ACT UP is known as an organization that largely was about white, cisgender, middle-class men and who just happened to be gay and then got sick or were friends with people or lovers with people who got sick. And so I was interested in writing about issues of race and I was looking just, you know, to write an abstract, put something together. And I just found this little quip about Haitians and the work that ACT UP did in relation to Haitians. And so I thought, Oh, well I'll do that. Uh, So, I wrote this little piece uh, about that using the archives uh, that act up New York has at the New York public library. And then, you know, life happens, book starts to go very slowly, uh, not really working on it. Uh, But then I really wanted to get this project done and it wasn't quite coming together. Uh, And then really right before the pandemic happened, I finally was like, I just have to get this done. And so I talked with my editor and so she was like, all right, let me give you a hard deadline. And I put it together. Well, then the pandemic happened, the new pandemic. And so I was finishing the book and the initial round of reviews were like, you have to change the whole book so that it's about the two pandemics in conversation. And I was like, oh, my God, I hardly finished this one. Um, But instead, what I decided to do was sort of bookend the project with thinking about COVID-19 and a little bit about what we can learn from the AIDS pandemic to help us understand the present moment. So it was sort of fortuitous that a book on the AIDS pandemic comes out as we're living through COVID, but uh, it certainly wasn't intended.
0: Yeah. It must've been like really evocative. you know. So in your book you discuss, and I really liked this phrase. So I have to ask you about this. So you discuss disease as one of many opportunities to express alien, alienizing logic, how does the, the
1: book explore this and what does that mean? Yeah, so you know I was I was interested in playing with the the notion of migration because that's what largely my work is about and I actually originally wanted this to be a book about activism at the intersection of AIDS and immigration and that just wasn't coming together but what I started to realize <laughs> excuse me is that even when disease in general isn't about immigration, which it, with HIV and AIDS, it really was from the beginning. But even when it doesn't seem like it is, disease is always about uh, borders. Uh, disease is often connected to migrant populations uh, globally. Uh, the book spoke focuses specifically on the United States. And it also targets other groups too, of course. It becomes an opportunity to target other groups. And so I started to really think about the category of the alien, not as a a legal category that people have used to describe immigrants, but as something that connected to a process and a process that I think is deeply embedded, probably in most Western countries, but again, the book about the U S deeply embedded in the way that the United States functions, uh, which is um, the age old, binary between the citizen and the alien. And so how does the citizen get produced? Through what I call alienizing logic. And disease is one of many opportunities we can find for a nation state to express that logic. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do with that term.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's quite funny, because all the way that I, all the time I was reading this, and as you're speaking now, i got this real kind of impression of the invasion of the corpus, of the invasion of the body. And if you think about that sort of like American logic that would have you believe that the the American body itself a white male, then this kind of invasion of the white male space by this kind of diseased others helps kind of solidify that corpus, doesn't it? It helps sort of rationalise who's in and who's out. Because that's really what citizenship is about, isn't it? It's like who's in and who's
1: out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the U.S. context, if you look back at, uh, say, late 19th, early 20th century discourse surrounding fears about immigration, there are all of these kind of bodily metaphors. And so not just talking about the nation as a, a body, but really the, the metaphors that get used to talk about assimilation. I mean, even mm-hmm. assimilation is a, is a term that was originally about digestion, but there's all sorts of digestion metaphors and lots of folks have written about this. Um, And so that kind of, I don't know, double metaphor about the the body um, and health uh, is very pervasive throughout the history of these kinds of discourses in the US.
0: Yeah, I was, you know, I didn't realize how important the discourses about disease were when I started until I started to sort of like read, you know, sort of like the the works around sort of, um, Sort of mid-century sort of uh discourses around prostitution are always talking about diseased, diseased, odorous yes. and damaging, I think is generally the consensus. So yes. the book the book um discusses how AIDS has always been in part about migration.
1: Um can you expand on that for us? Yeah, so again in the US context, and, and I think again, a lot a lot of Western countries, but early on. The imagined victims, at least we think, or for me, I was growing up during that time, I was quite young, was gay men. And those gay men in the United States were white, and they were U.S. citizens, and uh, they were, you know, they were diseased, and we saw these horrid images on the TV screen. And so the National Imaginary, historically, is about gay men. But if you actually go back and start to read news reports from the early days of AIDS in the United States when it was identified. It was, of course, about gay men, but it was almost as equally about Haitians and Africans. Um, And in fact, in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control in 1982 named four high-risk groups for AIDS. HIV didn't yet exist as a thing that could be labeled. And those groups were colloquially referred to as the 4-H club. It, It included hemophiliacs, heroin users or IV drug users, homosexuals, and Haitians. And so Haitians were uh, the only national group, the only group named for not something that they did, but something that they were. And it had hor- horrific effects, both for Haitians living in the United States, many who were immigrants, some were citizens, but many who were immigrants. And then for Haiti itself, Haitians living in Haiti, in Haiti. um, and so and, and we could talk similarly about the discourse around Africa, although Haiti was in some ways, when you look back, even though people think more about Africa, Haiti was very present. And so uh, almost immediately, there was concern about Haiti, that it came from elsewhere. Then there was, of course, patient zero, the not real, but imagined, uh, you know, flight attendant who was traveling all over and spreading this disease to everyone he could you know, sleep with. And um, right away, you have these, these fears about travel. And so the Reagan administration in the United States, as early as 1985 begins, even though they're not talking at all about AIDS publicly, they are beginning the work on a ban on HIV positive immigrants, uh, really on the back of Haitians and Africans. And so uh, this was from the beginning part of the fear around AIDS, even though it's not part of the dominant imaginary in the United States.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can remember in the UK at the time because, like, you know, in the 80s, I was, I was like, you know, I was in my uh, late late teens and early 20s when when the HIV epidemic was really being talked about and we, you know in the uk we you know we got that thing about you know sort of drug users homosexuals hemophilets and haitians but there was never any explanation we didn't even know who haitians were you know it was like and haitians it was just it wasn't even it wasn't even explained it was just like yeah. mentioned as like a, a high-risk group and there was no explanation so it's quite funny the way that the sort of um the rhetoric spread out, but with no explanation. It was almost, we all, we all got the echo from America, but didn't get the explanation of why that was. So yeah. you describe yourself and you mentioned earlier on that you're a, a rhetorical critic, okay? Um, how does the book explore
1: the impact of the rhetoric around HIV and AIDS? So what I'm trying to do in the book is, like I said, it originally started out as this sort of, project that was just about the activism around AIDS and immigration. And what I eventually realized is that discourses of quarantine kept coming up. And that was sort of strange to me because I was like pretty early. We knew that AIDS wasn't a communicable disease in the sense that like you can't get it from breathing or exchanging saliva. Even it's not like COVID, um, And so it it made no sense to me why quarantine kept coming up as I was reading these early reports. And then I started to realize, well, geez, even though it actually made no sense, it was hugely prominent. I mean, it was everywhere. There were all these discussions. And the first people to really even bring it up were gay men themselves. They had a feeling that this was going to happen, that they were going to be targeted with quarantine. And so as quarantine started to, I started to realize the significance of it, um, I started to dig deeper into the history of how quarantines happened uh, in the United States, uh, who they were targeted against, how they manifest. And I really started to um, realize that this was a a prominent thing and that many of these same uh, discourses that have been used historically were being brought up again. And so that's just one example to say, I think it's really important to look at the way that things are actually talked about in the written text, not necessarily just the way we we remember them or even the most prominent, but really sort of in a broad swath, because then you really do start to see in some ways what's going on and why it was going on. um, And then what historical discourse is being drawn upon. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's. Yeah, it does.
0: It It does. And what I I really sort of like took from it when I was reading it is that an almost invisible arm of the carceral system so you know this this kind of quarantine quarantine that does actually exist but also kind of like a metaphorical quarantining that kind of you know they're putting outside the kind of marginalization because of disease is almost like you know it made me think of like Foucault's discussion of, of of people being incarcerated at the end of the the 17th 18th centuries yeah sorry the 18th century um you know the the people that weren't you know the marginalized people that weren't going to be really particularly helpful to the um to the sort of uh, the new industrial age all end up being you know incarcerated in all different sorts of institutions and it's <clears throat> it's a, it's a similar thing here isn't it the the outsider you you you're incarcerating them without walls but effectively putting them outside of the society it's almost like homo Seca stuff isn't it it's like putting them outside outside the city walls and that's what really that really jumped out to me because i was really interested in something you said about uh the example of sullivan's island as uh, as as the sort of like the sort of um the ellis island of the the sort of slave trade and i wondered if you could talk a little more a little bit more about that because i've actually been to ellis uh, to sullivan island and i didn't realize they have this huge history so i wonder if you could expand on that for us
1: Yeah, I I mean, I didn't know this history either. Uh, And so Sullivan's Island is in South Carolina. Uh, It's in the the little kind of cluster of islands that are uh, right there on the coast. And it's kind of a historic space. And uh, one of the things that it is uh, known for, and this has actually only been very recently that this has come in, and there's actually not a ton of historiography about Sullivan's Island. But uh, it's imagined that you know, as much as maybe 40 percent of Africans who were forcefully brought to the United States uh, to be enslaved were actually initially processed through Sullivan's Island, uh, which became this huge quarantine center, one of the earliest quarantine centers in in the United States. And uh, so much so that in the kind of macabre way, some people have called it the Ellis Island uh, of slavery and and it makes sense and the metaphor i don't think works very well but it makes sense in some ways because ellis island of course was also a quarantine center more than anything else it's where you know people were held to see if they were fit uh to join the the young united states and so sullivan's island becomes this place where again you think about slavery and migration across uh you know the atlantic and um people were processed and then it just sort of left public memory in a lot of ways uh, even though um, it has this horrific um, history
0: yeah yeah because uh, you know like that that particular chapter sort of kind of like kickstarts a, a discussion that you have about um, the history of quarantining against um, sort of like different minorities within the American context so I wonder if you could like you know talk to us about how the book explores that
1: Yeah, so I did not intend at all to write a a chapter about this. And eventually I I, I realized that I thought it was important to really contextualize what happens with HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. And so um, what I what I do in this book, it's not it's not um, a long history or a comprehensive history by any means. But what I'm trying to pull out are kinds of moments when uh, discourses about quarantine are very prominent in various public sites in U.S. discourse. So sometimes that's media, sometimes that's uh, political discourse, um, congressional debates, these kinds of things. And so I'm trying to pull out these moments when quarantine comes to the forefront and in what ways it, or who it's targeted towards, right? So who becomes the sort of scapegoat, who is causing anxiety? And of course, it's largely migrants either already in the United States or coming from elsewhere, uh, or it's black folks, um, or sex workers, right? And so you kind of get, as you're saying, you know, folks who are already at the edges, but disease becomes an opportunity to uh, keep them at the edges or keep them out altogether, together. Uh, and it happens over and over and over throughout US history. And um, I felt like that was really. An important thing to then use to understand why it is that it makes sense in some ways in a kind of grotesque way that even though quarantine didn't make any epidemiological sense for people with HIV and AIDS, uh, it made a lot of historical sense, given what the U.S. has done with people who have disease that is connected to marginalized people uh, that is connected to quote unquote deviant behavior.
0: Yeah, I also, as well, was quite sort of taken as well at the idea that of the eighties when you've got this this kind of like epidemic, you know, this this discussion about the AIDS epidemic. At the same time, you're getting this kind of heightened carceral, you know, incarceration. The the war on drugs is kicking off at the same time, and you know, I was I was wondering if your book had sort seen other similarities with that through history because I know you talk about the kind of like the 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 desire to quarantine like chinese migration yeah.
1: yeah I think that's really an interesting point and not one that I get to uh really tease out a lot uh in the book except to say that uh you have similar similar folks being targeted and so where I didn't expect the book to go after I was writing you know kind of this this rhetorical history of, of quarantine in the united states and then what I had imagined is this would, would help us to, um, you know, understand the immigration, what happens, but the, the gap in there that I learned, which is what good research should do is it should bring things to the forefront that you didn't anticipate uh, is that where quarantine played out was on the backs of black sex workers Um, in this. And so the exact same people who, uh, it's on their backs that the carceral system in the United States uh, is explodes after uh, the Nixon administration in the early '70s, and so um, in some ways they are very much parallel stories about how uh, racialized groups get targeted in, the, in these ways, and it is this a similar logic, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah, you get you get you get to target the same the population that you're aiming at. In multiple different ways don't you? you can you can arrest them for behaviors you can arrest them for, for their health you know so you, there's all sorts of ways so can you can you tell us about the methodology that you used for your research
1: yeah so uh i think it's fair to say that anyone who uh studies rhetoric is very promiscuous methodologically and um we a lot of us always joke that when we were in grad school when we were in methods classes and trying to figure out, you know, what the hell this thing was, our professors would often say, well, just be brilliant, uh, which as you can imagine is very helpful. And so um, the approach that I generally, you know, take is um, I I, I figure out, um, you know, what concepts that I think are interesting. And then I just dig into news reports. I dig into um, congressional records Uh, I dig into public speeches given by elected officials and I kind of just chase stuff up. Um, And then what I'm really interested in is patterns of um, communication uh, about particular subjects. And so how do these patterns emerge? Um, Who is initiating and perpetuating such patterns? And then I try to offer a reading of them within the context. And so, in that way, I think for me, being a rhetorical critic is is very much like being a cultural studies scholar. I don't know that there's actually any difference, um, although I know boundaries matter to some people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, my, my, my background, like my, my my first degree is criminology and cultural studies. And they, they re- did really jump out to me as being a sort of cultural studies, like, uh sort of like book that that what we're what we're seeing here is that sort of boundary being brought into the into discussion boundary being sort of like brought into play that didn't necessarily exist before you know and that was really yeah. obvious i also really liked something that you said um and it's a really cool quote so i sort of we're going to read it for verbatim so regardless of the bodies they inhabit or are thought to inhabit Illness have a large discursive life intermingling with the physical c- course they own, and I just thought that was a really amazing sort of um, quote because I never really thought of um, you know a disease having a life, mm-hmm. you know, disease having a sort of like a you know sort of being a, a sort of something in and of itself, a, you know, a a sort of a, a, almost like a being in itself, mm-hmm. so. Can you talk us through, you know, sort of like the life course of, you know, of, of the AIDS discussion, how that first sort of emerged and how the book explores that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think AIDS, HIV and AIDS are such a good example of how disease takes on a life of of its own. Um, and I think, you know, Susan Sontag's work, Paula Treikler's work have really pointed to some of those uh directions very you know early work and i think i'm really indebted to to that work and you know what i'm really interested in in the book is uh i guess in some ways aids is aids, is, AIDS is, that's not really a word aids attachments to um all sorts of things right so uh it's attachment not just to bodies but it's attachment to fears It's attachment to uh, deep-seated anxieties that long preceded it and that will exist after. It's uh, attachment to uh, the the nation's imaginary of itself um, as made manifest in uh, an array of actors, uh, whether those be evangelicals, whether those be lawyers or or legal experts, or whether those be politicians or journalists. Um, And so... Uh, what, what I'm really tracing in the book is how AIDS comes to be attached to this idea of quarantine, um, how it comes to be this sort of perfect storm for the manifestation of alienizing logic, as I call it, which, of course, alienizing logic is really just a very simple thing that's been talked about in a variety of ways. And I'm trying to use it strategically uh, to bring different groups of people in conversation Um, and and the different ways that ends up playing out. So, again, moving from in the United States, folks who are already excluded from citizenship, like uh, sex workers, particularly Black sex workers, uh, and then how certain people take this thing, people like Jesse Helms, people like William Dannemeyer, who were elected officials with a lot of power and a lot of homophobia, uh, you know, sort of feeding that power, um, and, and use it as an opportunity to then attach it to immigrants, uh, whether real, like actual people who are, who, who they're afraid of, or, uh, the idea of invasion that has always been so central. So I guess, um, that's the way I think about that having a life of its own. It's often very abstract, uh, at least in the eyes of people who are perpetuating these ideas
0: yeah i I sort of like um i liked how you sort of like talked about it being viewed as a sort of foreign sexualized disease and um you know it struck me what what struck me as being quite unusual is that that, it, you know, it was a disease that's that seen as, as foreign and sexualized, but actually it was the first time that I, took, that I've, you know, that really I think we have a disease, that that's a male disease, even though, you know, you're not, you know, like, you know, my understanding of the HIV AIDS um, epidemic is that, you know, the, uh, you know, purport, disproportionately affects African women, yeah, but we, mm-hmm. never, we never talk about it in terms of the effects on women. It's always, always focused on, on the male, sort of like, you know, the men with the disease. And I thought that was quite interesting and quite unusual when it comes to marginalisation, mm-hmm. that actually who's been marginalised are uh, uh, sort of like a, 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 a sort of gay men who in every other way would be very much part of the mainstream.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think that is, um, it's true and not true, right? So, of course, absolutely, men who have sex with men uh, were the initial folks who were were suffering, at least in, you know, in the Western world. Um, But that that ended up switching pretty quickly. And even though materially, uh, you know, women very much became victims at a a higher rate, disproportionate rate, uh, you know, by the 90s. Uh, especially women of color, black women in particular in the United States, that has never, the the idea of attaching AIDS and gay men has never really dissipated uh, at all. And I think, though, what's also interesting about that is that's why you had such intense activism that actually worked,
0: Mm -hmm. at least
1: in the US context, is because you did have these men who worked on Wall Street, who were lawyers, you know, who were bankers, who were white and very privileged and living their best lives. And but for their homosexuality, they had everything. They were probably even Republicans, right? And yet they get sick and nobody cares. In fact, everybody is more than happy to have these guys just die. And so they used all of their resources, all of their white male privilege To put it into the anger of ACT UP organizations like Queer Nation, even some earlier groups, even groups like Gay Men's Health Crisis, which were focused on services. Um, And I think that is why that worked, because then you did have white men who should be listened to in the U.S. society um, who were, you know, acting up, fighting back.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about that later on in the book, how the HIV AIDS epidemic was also a kind of like a site of coalition. Yeah. You know, yeah. between, the, the, you know, sort of groups that you wouldn't necessarily have come together otherwise, you know. Sure. Um, tell us about how the book explains notions of alien citizens.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm building with the concept of alien citizen from uh, May Nye, who's a historian, and uh, she she develops the concept of alien citizen, or at least that's the place where I, I, I first encountered it, uh, to talk about, in the U.S. context, uh, Asians and Mexicans in particular, and their their sort of unique relationship to the U.S. nation state in the sense that even if they've been U.S. citizens for generations. uh, You know, it's like I'm like third generation Mexican-American in the United States, uh, but there's still questions uh, about, you know, whether my family belongs simply because of this relationship of being sort of forever foreign in the United States. And, And Asian groups, particularly Filipinos in her rendering, but Asian groups more broadly, have that similar kind of relationship. So she's talking about how, some citizens are never citizens. They're alien citizens. Um, and I took that concept and I'm trying to expand it even further, which is to say applying it to uh, groups like uh, black Americans in the United States uh, and to and particularly again, sex workers in the context of my book, which is to say uh, here you have folks who should have the, the rights and privileges of citizenship, Uh, but for their work, but for their class, but for uh, their race and sometimes their gender and sometimes their sexuality and how that all kind of converges, uh, there is no access to citizenship. They may as well be alien. And so um, I'm trying to think in the book about alien as a kind of uh, coalitional uh, positionality uh, that can help us to see resonances in places where often we're not seeing resonances. So in fact, usually we're seeing antagonisms, uh, the antagonisms between undocumented immigrants in the United States and black Americans, uh, specifically around issues of jobs. There's a lot of dog whistles, right? That get blown to the black community about undocumented immigrants to say, well, you know, basically they're stealing your jobs. At the same time, a lot of the discourse for undocumented uh, immigrants in the United States about why they should belong is things like, well, we're not criminals. We have good family values. And those, I think, are inherently anti Black and their codedness. And so um, that's what I'm trying to do with Alien Citizen is find ways to, um, you know, build connections where they might not otherwise be obvious. Okay. That's
0: quite interesting. I've never, I've never seen it that way. So you're talking about the outsider within, aren't you? And the sort in of like way- the way these. And these discourses are used in order to keep the outsiders out, but also to to turn the outsiders in on each other, you know. Um, So you talk really interestingly, there's a really interesting chapter about uh, common sense and the debates around banning HIV positive migrants. Can you talk about how the book explores that?
1: So, one of the things that happens, as I briefly mentioned earlier, uh, as early early as 1985, the Reagan administration, very much behind the scenes, was figuring out how they were going to create a ban on HIV positive people. Um, I guess it was just on people with AIDS at that point, because HIV was still in formation in terms of what the virus would actually be called. Um, And so, you know, the Reagan administration was kind of putting this together. Uh, And this is um, about the time when there's a lot of pressure on Congress and on Reagan to speak publicly about AIDS because uh, many people may not realize, but it wasn't until the spring of 1987 that Ronald Reagan gave his first public speech devoted only to the issue of AIDS. Um, And there had been very little... Uh, public discourse at all from the Reagan administration, even as they were working behind the scenes to try to do other things. And his Surgeon General, Sever Koop, had put out a statement in 1986, but it, w- it was very controversial and Reagan was getting a lot of um, kind of different information from the sides of his administration about what to do here. So the immigration ban, though, was one thing that was definitely going to happen. And so it is up for consideration uh, in the Federal Register at the time that the Senate um, takes up a question about uh, whether to provide resources for those who had been on a trial for the AIDS drug AZT, but now that AZT was going to be on the market, they wouldn't be able to afford it. And so Lowell Weicker, who is a Republican senator from Connecticut, he put forth on the appropriations bill that was being debated um, an amendment so that those who had been on AZT in the trial, they could still afford to be on the, the drug as long as they lived. And so Helms, Jesse Helms, the the infamous senator from North Carolina, uh, who was a, you know, hated gays, hated people with AIDS, he being very, very conservative. Um, he decides to add uh, an amendment on the amendment, uh, which was that it could only be passed if there would be a um, a ban on HIV positive immigrants or immigrants with AIDS and also a requirement to be able to have, uh, to take a test for AIDS before uh, you got married, a marriage license. So he does this, um, I think, knowing full well that one, he's legislating on appropriations bill, which is not what you're supposed to do, um, but also that the the marriage license piece of that is probably not really going to be taken up. In fact, it's going to be seen as kind of extreme, but he's going to be able to use that as a way to leverage in the ban on immigrants. Um, And that is in fact, what happens um, because really at the end of the day, all the senators end up agreeing uh, 96 to zero uh, end up approving this appropriations uh, bill that includes the ban that it is what's good for the nation, um, and it doesn't matter uh, about immigrants. And part of why it was so important that it happened right then is in 1986, uh, the Reagan signed into law the immigration. Uh, it's called uh, IRCA. So, um, forgetting the acronym now, but it's it was a, an act that added employer sanctions and added some more penalties for people who hired undocumented immigrants. However, it also offered a pathway to citizenship for folks who had been in the U S for a certain amount of time, but what the, this was about to get uh, instituted, but what the Helms amendment does is it means that everyone who's going to regularize their status now has to have a, a test for HIV. Uh, and so many people of course, don't end up regularizing who would have otherwise because they didn't, they were afraid of the test because again, of the life of the disease. Um, and. Uh, This becomes common sense that, of course, we should do this because what's good for the nation uh, is is what we should do. And this is imagine what's good for the nation. So that chapter is a really honestly, it's probably a very boring chapter to read because it's an analysis of these congressional debates and how this agreement comes. Uh, But I did think it was important to kind of show the development of this thing.
0: I, th- I thought I didn't I didn't find it boring at all. I find it quite interesting because what it made me think is that as is the way that AIDS was being used as a way to kind of like put in more barriers between those unwanted migrants and those that 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 could be accepted. You know, kind of like acceptable migrants. It was a way of kind of of forcing people into those kind of like those those heteronormative kind of boxes. Yeah. You know, and I just I just saw I just saw it as more of a kind of almost like um, a migrationary tactic, you know, because we know how how HIV AIDS is spread. You know, so why would why would you be protecting the whole of America from 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 people's like, you know, intimate sexual kind of, you know, sort of contacts or you know it just that was that's what it struck me i just had this image of this 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 kind of really unpleasant little southern republican just sticking up more walls to keep people out i was like okay that's what you're doing and it, it it was really quite interesting it was really it was really interesting so the book then goes on to discuss the resistance of the of the alienizing band so can you talk to us about the the resistance that this kind of like bought into play how this how this happened
1: yeah, so um, one of the things that happened, so, so the ban really it, the ban is put into place with virtually no fanfare in the media uh, in 1987. There's a few reports. There are you know, some of these immigrant rights organizations that you know put out statements because obviously they're upset about this because this is really impacting uh, their ability to regularize people in their communities. But it really happens without a lot of fanfare. Um, And I I think in some ways, the only only reason we actually get fanfare is because in uh, 1990, the International AIDS Conference is going to be um, held in the United States. And that's in the ban originally. And it's actually, it's quite complicated what the ban encompassed. And it was not really written that well. I mean, and it also put, the decision in the hands of Congress, as opposed to the Health and Human Services Secretary, which is usually where these decisions would lie, um, and it created all these controversies between the Justice Department, Health and Human Services, et cetera. But what happens is there's people that have HIV who want to come to the United States for this conference, so the International AIDS Conferences. Started in uh, 1986, I believe they're the biggest. They're still one of the biggest convenings of uh, people working on AIDS in the world. Uh, so they're vital meetings. Well, all of a sudden, it becomes clear <laughs> that people aren't going to actually be able to come if they have HIV. And so uh, it's not even activists who figure this out at first. It's it's like the the Red Cross uh, in the UK. That originally says, Hey, we're actually going to boycott this conference because we're pretty sure the way your law is written, a lot of our people aren't going to be able to come. And, like, that's not cool. So, let's just put some pressure on the government in the US. Well, then a lot of other people decide to boycott. And then activists and organizations like ACT UP in San Francisco get wind of this and they really take it as an opportunity to um, draw attention to the immigration ban and really to resist. the the ban itself. And so in 1990, there are huge protests as a result of the boycott, uh, again in 1991 to a degree at the conference in Florence. And then in 1992, there's so much pressure that uh, the conference then was supposed to be sponsored by Harvard and held in Boston. But there's so much pressure that they actually have to last minute move the conference to Amsterdam. um, And so that people can actually attend the conference. Uh, And you know, the truth is, it doesn't actually work. Uh, all the pressure, the boycotts, everything else doesn't lead to the end of the ban. And the ban doesn't end in the United States until 2010. So for 22 uh, years, uh, basically, for 20 years, basically, the the um, ban is in place. And so, um, and there's not another international AIDS conference in the US, I believe, until 2012. So uh, it's this you know, huge thing and people use it as an opportunity to um, respond to the way that folks with AIDS, particularly foreign nationals in the US, or even travellers, are treated.
0: It's quite interesting, though, because what I kept getting the impression of all the time that I was reading this is that, you know, like how we talk about othering, but that how othering sort of like gets, it gets almost like increased, like more and more people become othered. Like, it's, it's, a, it's almost like the, ma- the majority become othered uh, as opposed to this kind of privileged minority. And I and all the time I kept, I, kept, I kept reading this book, I was thinking, they have picked on the wrong people at this point to try and other. You've picked on a, a sort of like a section of society that is extremely well-resourced. You've picked yeah. the wrong fight. You know, and that that's what really kind of struck me. And then that was really kind of like important when you thought about, you know, how the book talks about the Haitian connection, mm-hmm. how how different it is when you don't have resources. yeah, um, And that really, really struck me. And because I, I just, again, I have this image in my head of this American senator trying to push all these gay men out of the door. And they're like, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. yeah but it's very interesting how you talk about the Haitian connection. So can you talk, can you talk us through the how the book explores the Haitian connection?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there were the, the four groups, Haitians were one of these targeted groups. And um, what I was, so, so I, I was because it was mostly migrants who were being targeted here, although Haitians, you know, citizens as well, as I said before, Um, I I was really interested in the question of Haiti and how it it came to be that Haiti got targeted and what were the sort of nuances of how Haiti got targeted, et cetera. And so I was doing what I do with my promiscuous methodology, and I was going into these media sources and I was um, seeing how Haiti was talked about. And it became very clear that Haiti really, other than in passing, Haiti wasn't talked about as much as it should have been it was always there, right? It was always part of the conversation, um, but it it wasn't, people weren't digging into the issues. And so then I started like in the New York Times, for example. And so then I started looking at queer media. So, or or I guess what queer is proto-queer media. So like um, some gay and lesbian newspapers and magazines and seeing, you know, if I could find out more. And I started to realize a couple of things. Um, So one, even though Haiti was always there, but just not really addressed in any kind of depth in, say, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, et cetera. um, In the gay press, uh, some of the gay press anyway, um, Haiti was taken seriously in a totally different way. Uh, And so what what I ended up doing is telling a story about the Haitian connection uh, from the perspective of queer media. Uh, and so queer or proto-queer media, how, and I use t- sort of two case studies. One is a paper called the New York native, which was in New York seventies, uh, eighties, it ended up um, shutting down in the nineties. Um, and then um, Diva TV, which was sort of the media arm of act up New York uh, and produced several episodes of what was called AIDS community TV. Uh, related to when the Haitians, uh, refugees who were fleeing uh, the overthrow of Aristide in 1991, when they were detained in Guantanamo Bay for some almost two years, and again the 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 reporting and what the gay press was doing, I just found um, fascinating how much Haitian voices were actually centered as opposed to you know white U.S. doctors who were the experts. Uh, and, you know, the way that the complexity of the situation was just taken so seriously. So I thought it was really important to talk about that as resistance, talk about that as a potentially potentially interesting site of a kind of coalition building, not in a uh, traditional sense. Because, of course, a lot of Haitians wanted absolutely nothing to do with anything the gay community was doing mm. about AIDS, even though there was a likely connection there. Uh, between the communities, so yeah, so that's um, that's what I, I wanted to do there is to again show the kind of queer possibilities there. Um, it, that the it was quite created. funny
0: because when I was reading it, like obviously I come from a sort of criminologist background. So I'm a critical criminologist, um, <laughs> and what I saw was the continuing the continued exclusion of Haiti that had been a feature since Haiti had like become the first independent black republic and mm-hmm. the way that it'd been outcast from the sort of wider kind of like, you know, the wider sort of like uh, sort of global community, how it, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's it was paying back France billions a yeah. year still until really, really recently. And I just saw that as that part, part of that same punishment you know it's almost like you're pushed out and you see it again you see it again when the, you know with the um with the tsunami that that the japan had at the same time as haiti had like haiti's still devastated and you know japan it was business as normal two weeks later you know and it was like i thought okay so you're still excluding you're still been ostracized for your for, for daring to to to, to free yeah, yourself yeah. of oppression that's how I, I that's how i read that as well i thought that was really interesting it, this this punishment is still ongoing with like haiti so i thought it was it was it was because even like you know earlier on when i said in the ex- english example you know you know everyone knew that hate haitians were were more liable to get AIDS, but nobody knew why and there was no explanation yeah. it was just, just how it is you know yeah. um Right, so I want to talk about your conclusion. In your conclusion, you open with a quote from, um, uh, oh God, I've forgotten his name, Peter Brimlow something. Brimlow, yeah. Yeah, Brimlow, sorry, I can't read my writing. So, Why no. did you use him? Why did you use him in your conclusion?
1: You know, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how people react to the conclusion, which in some ways feels like this weird departure uh, from the rest of the book. Um, you know, I had always planned to engage Brimlow and this is, you know, know, little background on how the publishing world works, which is, so, um, I wanted the book to be called alienizing nation. So Brimlow's book is called alien nation. And I wanted mine to be alienizing nation. And my editor very kindly told me that that was a horrible title for a book. Um, And that you shouldn't have a a neologism like alienizing uh, in a title. You actually want people to remember the title of the book. So I, 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 you know, learned that lesson. But nevertheless, what I felt like I was still doing with the concept of alienizing throughout was really being in conversation with books like Brimlow's. And Brimlow's is just one of many that I could be in conversation with. So these very nativistic um you know, very racist, very xenophobic books that are that are anxious about um, the national body. And so because what I was trying to do with the book is really show how disease is this opportunity to enact alienizing logic, and that alienizing logic is is foundational to the United States, what I really felt like I needed to do, was um, kind of dig into a a discourse that was more about the United States and about a particular idea of the United States, regardless of AIDS, regardless of disease, but to really kind of drive home the point about the depth of this logic. And so part of doing that is the kind of playing with the notion of the alien, alienation, alienizing logic with Brimlow, but then to show how Brimlow, who seems so out there to so many people, Uh, is actually sort of tapping fundamentally at what the quote unquote founding fathers, Abraham Lincoln, as the example and the conclusion, uh, really had in mind um, for what this country was about. And so it's me doing a reading of Brimlow and Lincoln in relation to each other to to drive home this point. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I I, I would love to hear what you thought. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just, because I was thinking that at the same time as this guy's written this like absolutely horrendous book, um, is is that you've got lots of other books that are kind of like around the same sort of time, that are doing yeah. the same sort of like stuff, which is like, you know, increasing the marginalisation around the internal alien so I'm thinking, this is the era of the bell curve and the era yes. of like you know broken windows. So you've really got to sort of like you've really got to start looking at these discourses around disease at the same you know as as coming in at the same time as these discourses around migration and 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 criminalisation. It's a kind of like part of a sort of like multi pronged attack on certain certain um uh sort of parts of the community and i was like i'd never really noticed that before until i read this book how important a part that public health and the 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 discourses around public health play in the evolution of the carceral system you know yeah so in a conclusion you discussed the significance of coalitional gestures can you expand on this a little bit more? Because I feel like this is really important, given that you,
1: you, you're getting these multi-pronged attacks. Yeah. So, you know, coalitional gesture was a, a term that I, kind of, I came up with in my, my last book, Queer Migration Politics, which came out in 2013. And in that book, I was talking about Uh, the way that in the United States, undocumented youth activists had adopted a lot of the tactics and strategies of the queer movement, specifically the idea of coming out of the closet. Um, And so, you know, I sort of ask, is this meant to be a coalitional gesture, uh, a sort of extending of uh, a hand toward another marginalized group in order to kind of bring them in? Um, And I, I didn't really, when I wrote that book, I didn't think that much about it as like a, you know, a hefty theoretical concept or anything, but it's actually been a term that a lot of people, including friends of mine have have taken up um, and I think it, imbued with more uh, meaning than I had. And so I've thought a lot about uh, that idea, I guess in the last, you know, eight years and thinking about what is what does it mean to, to um, extend a gesture of of coalition of solidarity Um, uh, under what conditions can that happen who can extend that gesture what does it look like Um, and so I am I am thinking about um, you know the possibility of you know alien being a position from which coalitional gestures can be extended for example Um, but I guess it's just a, it's a, it's a way to name the embodied nature of coalition too, as uh, a way that maybe some of the theory we have about coalition is often very abstract.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I get you. So, um, so what did you learn
1: writing the book? Yeah. Um, You know, the biggest thing that I, I wasn't thinking directly about as much when I started writing the book as I am you know, having finished it is, uh, about anti-blackness in the United States. I mean, anti-blackness as a, as a global phenomenon. Um, but the, the particular, uh, ways that, uh, anti-blackness is, is central to, um, everything that the United States does and, um, really thinking about how, uh, that plays out in different ways with regard to immigration. And so, Um, you have, you know, what Iowa Ong talks about the sort of blackening and whitening of different immigrant groups. And, and I always kind of thought about that as, as, as metaphorical in, in a sense, even though I knew what she was saying, but, um, she wasn't writing as much about the impact on black bodies. And so the, the biggest thing for me, I think has been, um, to think in very material, very embodied ways about blackness, about black people, um, and about, uh, even when Black death is all around, how do you tell stories about Black livingness? How do you um, write, which I hope I do in such a way uh, that the voices of the most marginalized Black folks, whether that's Haitians uh, who've been maligned in all these ways, or you know, sex workers who are meant to be you know excluded to oblivion, um, how do how do we hear those folks in their own voices, and and what does that tell us about? us whoever that us might be that's not them um and so I think I became really attuned to that in ways that I don't know I don't think I was as much before yeah
0: yeah so who was the book written for what was your target audience
1: yeah um you know I think I I I hope that people who are um academics you know students who are interested In you know, kind of, I think unlikely relationships among issues and topics and people who are um, invested in social movements and public health. I hope that they'll um, read this. I hope that's my main audience. But um, you know, I was very surprised with my last book uh, at how how many activists picked up the book, found utility in the book, Uh, and so I, I really hope that folks in the community who are still working on issues of HIV AIDS folks who are thinking about responses to COVID um, thinking about racialization and and the real impacts of that and how you can respond. I hope the book will be of use to them too. And I, I really did try to write in a way that um, I could have the widest possible audience, uh, which is, you know, hard. I think hard, the longer you are an academic, the harder that is in some ways because you get more insular, but that really was um, my hope is to be able to reach those two audiences. Yeah, we get disconnected, don't we?
0: Um. So, what's next? What's next on your agenda? What What are you working on now?
1: Yeah. Um. I, I think I'm working on a book about uh rock throwing at international borders. So, uh, you know, I have a long uh, standing interest in issues related to Palestine, and I have a you know my interest in the U.S. Mexico border, which is long standing, and um, I was really Taken in 2018, when uh, Donald Trump told the U.S. military that they should consider uh, anyone who throws a rock at them at the U.S. Mexico border uh, to have fired a rifle. And I've, and he backtracked on that, of course, but you know, he meant it. Um, And I started to really just think about the ways that the throwing of the stone uh, becomes the rationale for lethal violence and throwing rocks as weapons of the week. And kind of that connects people transnationally, transhistorically. Um, And so, yeah, I'm kind of digging into this project about throwing rocks.
0: That's interesting because when you say that, when I think about people throwing rocks, I think of it as a really young thing to do. I I think of young teenage boys in Palestine. I think of young David and Goliath. So what what's Trump doing there? What introducing state violence against youth. That's yeah. basically what that is, isn't it? Introducing yeah. state violence against youth. So yeah, you've got that one for free. Um so I appreciate that, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no that's that's that, that's what sprang to my mind as soon as you said that. Okay. You're justifying violence against children. Um, right. This is your opportunity for shameless self promotion. Who are you? Who is the book? Who publishes it? And when did you?
1: So, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, once again, the, uh, the book, The Border of AIDS, Race, Quarantine, and Resistance, the official uh, launch date, I guess, was June 29th, 2021, with the University of Washington Press. Um, and I always say to people, and I, I, I'll say this, you know, to your audience, too, although if it's too big, I guess I'd have to backtrack, but um, there's a, a 30% off code that I can give to folks um, I used a lot of um, my research money to make the book really affordable. It's 25 US dollars um, and then you can get 30% off. And, you know, if there's students who are really interested in the book and they can't buy it, you can always reach out to me and I'm, I'm happy to get you a copy of the book. Um, so thank you. Excellent. So, um, yeah, we'll
0: work out a way to do that in the blurb. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. That was awesome. <laughs>